I like that we get to talk about these things and we hit it from a different angle, but because we love each other and because we have the same religious views, you know, church is the centerpiece of our lives. Worship is the centerpiece of our lives. Molly Hemingway speaking at the Issues Etc. Making the Case conference. So when we are just going back and forth on politics, it's really not that important relative to the things that do in, matter. And in all safe. seriousness, if you do not have someone in your life that you both completely trust and regularly engage in arguments with, you're doing it wrong. You can watch and listen to journalists Mark and Molly Hemingway's Q&A and all of the presentations from the 2023 Making the Case Conference for a contribution of $300 by Labor Day. We'll send you links to download a podcast or watch a video stream. Order today at issuesetc.org or by check. Make your check payable to Issues Etc. and send it to Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. If you come, I will answer. If you follow, I'll pick you up. And if you Welcome go, back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. On this Thursday, August the 10th, it's time to go through listener email. Talk back at issuesetc.org. And the Issues Etc. comment line, 618-223-8382. We get questions from listeners on provenient grace. That's an old term that... Well, I'll take a little explaining. And then another question, uh, how many days was Jesus actually in the tomb? It says three days, but if you do the math, it doesn't count up to three 24-hour days. We'll answer those questions as we go through your email and the issues, et cetera, comment line. Let's begin with Brian in Sunnyvale, Texas. I'll bet it's hot in Sunnyvale right now, Texas, don't you think? He says, this is from A.W. Tozier. A.W. Tozier is a popular, was a popular evangelical pastor and author in the 20th century. The quote reads, we pursue God because and only because he has first put an urge within us that spurs us to the pursuit. No man can come to me, said our Lord, except the Father which hath sent me draw him and it is by this very prevenient drawing that God takes from us every vestige of credit for the act of coming. The impulse to pursue God originates with God, but the outworking of that impulse is our following hard after him, and all the time we are pursuing him, we are already in his hand. Thy right hand upholdeth me. And Brian concludes, this is after the quote, Could you explain the difference between prevenient grace taught in some denominations. In our teaching of our confessions on election, etc., I was taught that Lutherans don't teach prevenient grace, but the above sounds a bit like the explanation of the third article of the creed. Confused? Need help here, please? And that's what we're here to do. Brian, thanks for listening in Sunnyvale, Texas. It's really not just some Christian denominations. To my knowledge, and I'm going to exclude Eastern Orthodoxy here because I don't know enough about their theology to see if they have something akin to prevenient grace, which they might call something else. Virtually every Christian confession, with the exception <laughs> of Lutherans, teach prevenient grace in some form or another. It's very interesting. The concept is first invented by St. Augustine, who was debating with a heretic of his day, Pelagius, Pelagius believed that man had everything in him already to make a completely free will decision to come to faith. And Augustine knew that wasn't right because he'd read St. Paul. So 
Augustine, in his enthusiasm to countermand Pelagius's idea, came up with this idea of provenient grace. That it just means grace that comes before. That God extends to a man, let's talk about individual, to a man, this provenient grace that works in him the desire, and then some would even later say, the ability to come to God. Everybody picks up on this with the exception of the Lutherans. So the Roman Catholics pick up on it. They have their own concept of provenient grace. It's a grace that comes before conversion and kind of leads to conversion. The Arminians, kind of the opposite of the of the Calvinists, they also have their concept. They believe that God extends this grace, and this is what makes man able to make a... a they're Pelagians, they're semi-Pelagians. They believe that man has it in him, but just not enough, and all he needs is a little shove, which is that provenient grace. Oddly enough, the Calvinists also have their own concept of provenient grace. They call it common grace. And then with Wesleyans, they take this and run with it. Who else? Well, that brings us to probably the Reformed also have a concept. Lutherans never picked this up, despite their deep roots in Augustinian theology. And there's really a good reason for it. First of all, Lutherans didn't feel the need to explain how it is man approaches God and Lutherans didn't struggle, we say Calvinists did, with the dilemma of election, why some and not others. So they didn't have to explain how God kind of gets the elect around to his side. And this is far more important. Provenient grace is an idea that disconnects the work of the Holy Spirit from both grace and the word Provenient grace is an idea that somehow God extends, not, not through his word, but just through kind of immediate means, this ability or this desire to seek God. And Lutherans never wanted to talk about the work of the Spirit apart from the God's external word. And they never wanted to talk about God's grace apart from Grace that is extended solely in Jesus Christ through that word by that spirit. So wanting to hold those three things together, the idea of saving grace, because remember, provenient grace isn't saving grace. It's kind of, do you want to be saved grace? Or maybe I'd like to be saved grace. And Lutheran said, no, if God is working through his word, then his spirit is active in calling all men not just some, but all men, to repentance and salvation. It was that simple for them. There was no need in the Lutheran system of theology to come up with an idea of God acting before conversion or apart from his word or apart from his spirit to draw men to himself. The drawing is done, and now we come back to the third article of the Creed, which says it beautifully. I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ or come to him. But the Holy Spirit... There's the Holy Spirit, see? Not provenient grace. Not God just somehow immediately or invisibly inviting you. The Holy Spirit has called me by what? Called me by the gospel. Now, that doesn't just mean 
the bare gospel apart from the law. It means called me by his word to both repentance and faith. So Lutherans keep the three things together, grace, the Holy Spirit, and God's word. And in doing so, they just never saw a need for any concept, as well-meaning as Augustine was, for any concept of pervenient grace. We don't need to explain what God does before conversion when we know so clearly what he does at conversion. You're not going to get a Holy Spirit working apart from the word. You're not going to get some sort of grace being extended apart from the Holy Spirit. So keep those three together, and you can understand why among all the confessions of Christianity, Lutherans lack a concept of provenient grace. Mark writes in Colorado, we listened to Lutheran Hour Ministries Daily Devotion. On August 7th, the devotion talks about Jesus should die to atone for the world's sin. It then says he died and was buried three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, Matthew 12, 40b. Then on the first day of the week, the longed-for rescue came as the Savior was raised from death. I cannot make the math work as Jesus died on Good Friday and was raised on the third day Easter. That is only two nights, Friday and Saturday. What does Matthew 1240b refer to? Thank you and blessings on your outreach, concludes Mark in Colorado. Oh, you're right. If you just add up the hours and people have done a lot of mischief, but they've also kind of run down a lot of rabbit holes trying to figure out how it is Jesus is going to be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Now, remember, I think it is in that passage that in, there in Matthew that Jesus is making a comparison between himself and Jonah. So just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will do this. He's making reference to his resurrection. We're not actually told how long Jonah was, you know, was it three complete 24-hour cycles of the, of the earth that Jonah was in the belly of the whale, or was it a, is that an approximation? Was it like it's setting the timer on the oven for 36 hours, and when the bell dings, then the, the whale spits out Jonah? There's no indication of that. And remember, Jonah is there to prefigure Christ. Christ is not to be read back into Jonah. That's not how it works. Jonah is there to prefigure Christ's resurrection. It's a whole reason he's in the belly of the fish from a prophetic standpoint. So if you do the math, Jesus goes into the grave before sundown Friday night. Sundown Friday night begins the Sabbath in the Jewish way of counting days. He's all night and day of the Sabbath in the tomb. And then we're told by Matthew's account of the resurrection that very early on the first day of the week, so anytime after sundown on Saturday, but far more likely that speaking there very early on the first day of the week in terms of very early in the morning as we would count it, Jesus rises. So if you count up the hours, he's really in the tomb maybe a minimum of 18, 20, maybe 20. He's in the tomb 
24 plus, say, 8. So, 32. And then however many hours into the Sabbath he gets before he rises. So, it's, it's not even 48 hours. That's, we would say that's not two days. That's two days, not, not three days. But the way that we talk about days, Jeff went to Florida. So you went to Florida. How many days were you in Florida when you went? I don't know, Craig. Craig would probably know better than me. Yeah, Craig would know. Like, I, I, well, I mean, I think we were actually five, five days, but it was like a seven day, because it takes you a day and a half to drive. Right. So, but exactly if I said, what I was going to say. You were exactly. in Florida. If you said, I was in Florida seven days, no one would say, you're a liar. You were driving part of that time, and you were in Georgia for part of that time, and you were in wherever Kentucky, else, Kentucky Tennessee. and Tennessee and Southern Illinois. No, they just say he went away for seven days and he was in Florida. Did he instantly appear in Florida on the beginning of the seventh day and then instantly come back? No. Or you could say we were in Florida five days and two of, the, two of those days we spent in the car. And either way, you would be giving a truthful and accurate description of your trip to Florida. The same is true of Jesus' time in the tomb. Whether we say, let's count up all the hours and try and figure out exactly how many hours he was there, there in the tomb, over the course of three days, he's in the tomb Friday evening before the sun goes down, he's in the tomb all day Saturday, and he's in the tomb a part of, a little part, maybe a big part, but before the sun came up, of Sunday, he's in the tomb over the course of three days. And you'd say, how long was he in the tomb? Jesus says, after three days, I'll rise. And he's not saying, by the way, when I die, set the timer for 36 hours. And when the timer goes off, I'm going to rise. That's not what he's saying. The whole point of him being in the tomb, if you think about it, it's not the amount of time he spent there, but the day he spent there. He keeps a perfect Sabbath, seventh day of the week, and he rests from all his labors for a perfect Sabbath seventh day of the week. And then when his, when his rest is over, even before the sun comes up, he rises. So we don't get caught up in the setting a timer or a stopwatch on Jesus in his resurrection. He says three days, three nights. We see what he actually does. And we say, oh, that's what he meant. When he says in the heart of the earth, three days and three nights, you, you could say, well, well, then why didn't he stay another night? He only stayed two. If you want to know what he means by three days and three nights, you look at what he actually did and you say, ah, that's what he means. Hi, this is Scott from St. Augustine. I have two comments. One, thank you so much for the great interviews you had about the uh, convention this week. They were uh, very enlightening to me and an easy way for me to follow what I consider to be the most serious issues facing the Senate this time around. My second is a question. Uh, I just finished listening to um, Will Whedon's discussion on the uh, seventh thesis in Walter's Law and Gospel about preaching while, we were, while I was working in the yard, and I was wondering how Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of the Anger of God, would fare against Walter's analysis. Perhaps you could do a sermon review on it. God bless everything that you all do. Have a great day. 
Thank you very much. We were happy to bring you the convention updates. And maybe we'll follow a couple of those stories as time goes by. We'll see what happens. Also, Pastor Whedon's series that we're doing with him, this is turning out really nicely, doing this uh, series on CFW Walther's great work, The Proper Distinction Between Law and Gospel, just walking through it page by page. And I know that a lot of our listeners are appreciating it. John Edwards' Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God has come down to us in American folklore as kind of the quintessential Great Awakening sermon. And the interesting thing about that sermon historically is that when John Edwards delivered it, it made no impression on a single person. No one walked out of the church after he delivered Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God Cut, well, maybe they did cut, walk out cut to the quick, but it made no impression initially. Edwards was rather infamous for his very flat, boring delivery of his sermons. But when it was published, that's when it caught fire. Now, I'd have to go back and read it again to see how it would stack up against Walther's criteria for good preaching. If I remember correctly, it's not a very long sermon, Maybe we can put that question to Pastor Whedon the next time we have him in for our series, because I know Pastor Whedon probably could read through Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God in five minutes and give us a good evaluation of it. I just emailed the the comment to Pastor Whedon. Okay, so he'll come in ready with uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And it's really remembered more for the effect that it had or that it allegedly had in sparking revival than it is for how Jonathan Edwards delivered it or the immediate effect that it had on his first audience. On the other side of the break, we'll come back with more listener email and the issues, etc. Comment line. Was the reformer Martin Luther innovating or in error when he added the word alone to Romans 3.28, for we hold that one is justified by faith alone apart from works of the law? Find out in Pastor Will Whedon's column in the latest Issues Etc. journal. In the Wittenberg Trail feature, Dr. Donna Harrison details her journey to confessional Lutheranism from Catholicism, Scientism, Mysticism, and Evangelicalism. The free online Issues Etc. journal. Just click the red journal subscription button at issuesetc.org. The days are shortening and it's soon back to school. Ad Crucem has beautiful posters and art to adorn your home school or classroom and we print them right here in our Colorado workshop. Come and see our various prints by Cronach, Holbein, Bonat, Tintoretto and Caravaggio. Stock up on our daily prayer posters, creed posters and other beautiful Christ-focused artworks. Visit adcrucem.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M dot com. Luther had Wartburg. We have Collinsville. You're listening to Issues Etc. Memoria Press award-winning Latin programs have successfully taught hundreds of thousands of students across the world. Their easy-to-use, step-by-step Latin curriculum provides students with an academic vocabulary, a mastery of English grammar, and strong critical thinking skills. If you're interested in learning more, visit memoriapress.com and save $5 on your next purchase by using the coupon code LPR23. 
Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. Register today. The 2023 Lutherans for Life National Conference is October 11th through the 13th at the Holiday Inn Cincinnati Airport in Erlanger, Kentucky. The conference includes visits to the Ark Encounter and Creation Museum. Online registration is open now with early bird pricing at lutheransforlife.org conference. Lutherans for Life, equipping Lutherans and their neighbors to be gospel-motivated voices for life. lutheransforlife.org Wait, oh yes, wait a minute, Mr. Bozeman. Wait, wait, hey, 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 Mr. Bozeman. Mr. Bozeman, look at author of the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for August, Richard Davenport, writing in his new book, The Baptismal River, about the baptism of Jesus. This event is one of the few places we clearly see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all visible at the same time. Jesus standing there in the water with the Father and the Holy Spirit around him should remind us of the very first time we see all three persons together at creation. The Trinity does not appear here by happenstance. The Triumph God is actively demonstrating what baptism is all about by recalling the very earliest point in history when Father, Son, and Holy Spirit take an unformed ball of water and begin transforming it into the world we know. Baptism brings us back to creation, recreating us into the sinless state and the image of God we were created to have. That's the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for August, The Baptismal River, Studying the Sacrament Throughout Scripture. It's at our website, issuesetc.org, or call Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040, 1-800-325-3040. We're going through listener email on the Issues Etc. comment line. And you mentioned the Great Awakening. That was the second Great right. Awakening, right? The first was Charles Finney, right? Correct? Yes, the two waves of uh, revival that, well... One did a lot of good and did a lot of good and a lot of bad. One Arminian, one was Calvinist. Yeah, absolutely, right? that's crazy. Where are the Lutherans? Are we even in America at that time? I don't know. What's well, Wal- yeah. What's, what's Walther doing? I can't, I can't remember what was the date of the Second Great Awakening. I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm sure we have a Calvinist listener going to call us and tell us. I did a poor job of proofing the email because we usually lead with criticism. And what would an email or a comment line podcast segment be without some criticism of everyone's favorite guest, Terry Mattingly? Gwen writes, I heard the interview with Terry Mattingly on the article about the autism surge and then found the article. I am writing as a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod member with a 14-year-old autistic son who was confirmed this past spring. My husband and I also have a 16-year-old son. I find the tone of the article frustrating. Its overall tone is autism is a tragedy. While autistic people definitely have challenges, being autistic, having an autistic child is not a tragedy. I felt that Terry Mattingly agreed with much of the tone of that article, which I found disturbing. I don't think Mr. Mattingly is the one I would interview on this topic. I would find someone who can give a much more positive view on autism to talk about what autism is and what it is not. What we can do as congregation members to support our fellow autistic congregants, what pastors can do, what Lutheran schools can do. I do think autism is something we need to talk about more, get more education about. I just don't think the session yesterday with Terry Mattingly did the subject any justice at all. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the feedback, Gwen. What Terry was trying to do was tie in this piece on the rise of autism diagnoses into a religion angle. We bring him on as a journalist, not as a general expert on all things Terry Mattingly. So he's trying to urge the press toward, hey, there's a 
there's a really strong religion angle here with all these diagnoses and the religion angle being what are churches and church schools and things like that? What are they doing to deal with the presence of people who are on the spectrum? What are they doing to accommodate them? And so I'll just give you an example. You guys know that my wife works in, in uh, community theater as a hobby. And this is all the rage now in community theater is how is the theater going to accommodate people on the spectrum? So things that didn't used to happen, happen a lot. Loud noises are warned against in the playbill because people on the spectrum can have problems with sudden loud noises. I know that my son who's on the spectrum certainly has problems with sudden loud noises. They, they're very distressing. So there are accommodations being made. Well, what are churches doing? That's what Terry was talking about. I don't think Terry agreed or disagreed with the, with the article itself. He was simply using it as a springboard to say, here's a religion angle that any good religion reporter could pursue and get a number of different stories out of it. So if we're going to talk about the autism spectrum disorders, then we would certainly not have Terry on because he's a journalist and we were, we were addressing journalism vis-a-vis autism. We would have someone who's an expert in autism on which is not a bad idea. I think Terry's really onto something. His idea that the church, we don't know yet because the stories aren't being told, the church certainly has had to deal with this. And are there churches that have found ways to welcome children, adults, anyone with autism, given their special needs? So I, I look, I've lived with it for so long. My son was diagnosed when he was in fifth grade. So how old is that, 11? It's been, don't know how old my son is. I'll just take a guess. He's 27, whether he likes it or not. 27, 28. So we've, we've dealt with adolescent issues and then uh, issues related to being an adult with autism. And I'm no expert. I'm an expert in him, but I'm not an expert in the field it would be very interesting to talk to someone who's an expert in the field. But I think there's also something that the church ought to be concerned about that Terry maybe didn't address. And that is why have we seen so much diagnosis of this and leaving behind conspiracy theories about what causes autism? Is it just a fashionable diagnosis? to be made? Is it like the old ADHD where pretty soon everybody has it? Or my wife and I have a theory that everybody's on the spectrum. <laughs> and maybe people who, have, who are diagnosed with autism or other forms of spectrum disorder are just on one end of the spectrum. So it's a good idea. We should probably talk to somebody. It's a great idea. I think I told you we had more Facebook post activity our social media guy posted, what's your congregation doing with autistic members? And I think there was more comments and posts than anything we've done in the last couple of years at facebook.com slash issues ETC. And, and we're also dealing with something that can be very severe, that can actually be so severe that, you know, you have children that are essentially locked away in their own world. And it can also be so very high functioning, but still... Uh, what does my son call it? It's, it's not, um, he calls us normies. 
and there's another term for the you know how they how people with autism tend to think of themselves and look it's it's a mystery to me it's how the brain works and you encounter something that can't be taught away or doesn't go away and you realize you know all of us have these things in our lives none of us are neurotypical that's the term all you ever get is in the best possible circumstances is neurotypical and everybody else is falling on the spectrum someplace and we can't idealize the person that sits right at the top of the bell curve and say that's what everyone ought to aspire to. We're all going to be on someplace on either end, tailing end of the bell curve. So Terry was really asking two really good questions as far as religion angles. What are churches and schools doing to reach out to this community, mm-hmm. to the people that are members of your church? But it's also, is this an opportunity to reach non-Christians? Yeah, two very good questions. And Gwen brings up a, a great point. We should probably get somebody on to talk about autism in the church. One final email, David, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Thank you for the series discussing the era of Seminex based on the new book from Concordia Publishing House. The issues that faced us during the battle for the Bible along the battlefronts of the law's third use, church fellowship, and so many lines of demarcation help us see more clearly matters we face today. As our convention addressed issues relating to the mischief at Concordia, University of Texas, and so forth, we can thank God for the wisdom gleaned from keeping an eye on church history and God's inerrant word. So we pray now as we face diversity, equity, inclusion issues, the assaults from the LGBTQ lobby, and other aggressive social movements, Lord, keep us steadfast in thy word. Curb those who by deceit or sword would wrest the kingdom from thy son and bring to naught all he hath done. Thanks for listening in Fort Wayne, Indiana, David. Thank you very much, David. I've learned a lot from going through this book with some of its authors, the the book on the kind of revisiting the issues of the Seminex controversy in the Lutheran Church, Missouri. He said it, and it strikes me every chapter I read, every author, how much worse it was than we knew. How close to the precipice the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod was to becoming the ELCA a full 20 years before the ELCA. It's how close we came and how narrowly that was diverted. And you know, I've said it before and I'll say it again. There are some great churchmen, clergy, who stood up, saw the light, and they have plaques on seminary walls right now and buildings named after them, hopefully, and maybe some statues built. But the real difference that was made for the church in that time came from lay people. We talked about the recent Senate convention. It was that Senate convention in New Orleans in 1973 that finally said no to all of the nonsense that was going on at Concordia Seminary and in other institutions of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Senate. And so just like the first Reformation, <laughs> it was lay people who sounded the clarion call for the purity of God's word and the gospel. And it happened in the 70s, and we're still paying the, the unpaid bills of the Seminex debacle. There's still unpaid bills. Thank God we have good churchmen, lay people. I'll just put in a plug for Pastor Matt Harrison, president of Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, who's making sure those bills get paid. When we come back, we're going to spend some time with Jonathan Connor. We'll be talking life issues, connection to God, confidence and faith in our series, Kids Have Questions. 
Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio.